0: this week's treasure friend is just in time podcast three broke stoners with limitless potential arguing about what matters most rookie Redcorn, and dj aimlessly giving cloudy perspectives on all things pop culture and society have to offer including but not limited to movies comics sports random everyday life and embarrassing personal stories Subscribe to them on iTunes, and hit them up on Twitter at JNTPodcast. Greece, the distant past. King Ergonus had lost everything in the war with Thebes. When a truce was finally declared, both armies returned back to their cities. But for Ergonus, it was a bittersweet homecoming. All of his accumulated prosperity and resources had been depleted by a petty battle that had gone on for too long. The king had to start over from nothing. Though it took many years, Ergonus did eventually recover his fortunes. But in devoting himself to prosperity, he had neglected an arguably more important form of wealth rearing a family. And at an old and childless age, King Ergonus had nobody to inherit his empire. The Greeks, you'll come to know very quickly, love their irony. So Ergonus departed his lands for the shadows of sacred Mount Parnassus, home of the Muses and a favored mountain of Apollo, the god of light and truth. It was also, according to the ancient Greeks, the center of the world, specifically the valley of the southwestern slope known as Delphi. And since the world was Gaia, the Mother Earth, here was her navel, the center of her almighty being and a powerful nexus of energy. There was only one reason why Ergonus, and so many other travelers, came to this spiritually potent spot, to have their fates revealed to them by the Pythia otherwise known as the Oracle of Delphi. Because Ergonus was king, his request to speak with the Oracle was prioritized, and he was escorted to the smoky cavern by the Pythian servants of the god Apollo, whose voice the Oracle was said to channel. The Pythian priestess was, for all intents and purposes, a mouthpiece for the gods. Per ritual, the priest sacrificed a kid goat and divined its entrails for a favorable sign. Then, and only then, was Ergonus permitted to speak with Pythia, who sat veiled, clad in white, on a three-legged platform. Ergonus pleaded with her, and she slipped into her trance, gripped by the influence of the divinity she served." In the violent throes of ecstasy or madness, the Pythian priestess cried out, held back by her attendants, and she spoke this prophecy yeah, Argonus, son of kings, late thou hast come to me seeking offspring. Yet even now, though the plough be old and rusted, take to the handle and sow your fields. See if you shall bear harvest." With the fortune bestowed, a trembling Ergonus gave the oracle his blessing, and turned to leave the cave. But as he took torch and fumbled for the exit, he heard the priestess, or rather, the beings speaking through her, whisper one final warning. King Ergonus did live long enough to bear two sons, Agamedes and Trophonius, and the two brothers grew up to become renowned architects and builders. So lauded were their works that many religious institutions commissioned them to build temples and shrines, and soon the brothers became beloved by the gods. One legend has it that the brothers were so celebrated in their works that the followers of Apollo at Delphi invited Agamedes and Trophonius to construct a new temple. Upon completion of their greatest work, the brothers were summoned to a private audience with the oracle. She, who had foretold their birth many years before, said that they had done well, and that Apollo would grant them their greatest desire. The brothers discussed the matter among themselves, and, coming to a consensus, spoke humbly, stating that the only desire they had was to die a peaceful death. The oracle smiled serenely, and thus it was so. She told them to feast and celebrate for seven days, and, after six days of revelry and drunkenness, the sun rose on the seventh. But the brothers did not, for they had died in their sleep, because their wish was granted. After all, they had asked for a peaceful death, but they had never specified a delivery date. A much different tale paints a more dastardly portrayal of Agamemnon and Trophonius. In this account, they lived well past the construction of the Temple of Delphi, and were commissioned by a king named Hyrius to construct his treasury, which they built with ease. But as the servants of wealthy Hyreus began piling in all of that gold and silver, the brothers began to grow hungry for treasure. They constructed a secret passageway that would allow them access to the chamber without Hyrius or the servants knowing. And every night, Little by little, a portion of the king's wealth vanished at the hands of these sly architects. Hyrius did eventually notice, but couldn't explain how his vault was depleting, when the keys to the chamber were kept under safe watch. So he went about and installed a snare to capture the thief, or thieves in this case. Later that night, the brothers snuck into the chamber to pilfer the king's gold. Agamedes entered first and was thus ensnared immediately in the trap. Unable to free his brother, and fearing that Agamedes would be put to torture to reveal his accomplice, Trophonius took his sword and cut his own brother's head off, preventing King Hyrius from discovering the thieves' identity. With his brother's head dripping blood, Trophonius fled to the city of Lebedea and took shelter in a cave. Now, mortal kings are one thing, but the gods are not so easily fooled. There is a steep price to pay in ancient Greek lore for fatricide and deceit. The legends are a bit scarce on what exactly happened to Trophonius, but tough is to say, he never emerged from his cavern at Lebedea. All we have to fill in the blanks is our knowledge of those other Greek malcontents who earned the wrath of the gods, They were usually punished with transfiguration into something ghastly and evil, like a spider, or a tree, or a lady with snakes for hair, and the gods kind of just threw things at the wall to see what would stick. But you can't say they weren't creative about it. Trophonius was technically the product of Apollo's blessing, and for being touched by a god of prophecies, Trophonius' curse might have taken this into account. Whatever happened to Trophonius, we know it was not good. What he and his final dwelling place would become was positively nightmarish. Several years after Trophonius disappeared, the region of Boeotia was struck by a terrible drought, and envoys were dispatched to Delphi to ask for the gods' intercession. The oracle instead pointed the pilgrims to their capital city of Lebedea. She said that a different oracle there needed appeasement. Now, this caused great confusion amongst the ambassadors, for not only was there no knowledge of an oracle and Lebedea, but the capital was currently in the grips of something worse than a drought, a mysterious epidemic. Being that Apollo was the god of medicine, it was also widely understood that he was the god of plagues when mortals got on his bad side. Assuming the people of Lebedea had done something to offend the god, a contingency soon departed for the city in this time of famine and desperation when death was but a daily occurrence a young boy found himself on the edge of town he had come to the fields to try and find vegetables or roots to bring back to his ailing family as he himself was still untouched by this inexplicable illness while out in the silent pasture he spotted a swarm of bees now where there are bees there is often honey the boy followed the bees Or rather, the bees led the boy to a crack in the earth at the top of a lonely hill. Cautious, the boy peered into the darkness below, and found that he could successfully squeeze himself inside. In the darkness of the cave, the boy followed his guides with great trepidation. He was not only far from home, but there was something simply off about this cavern still he couldn't turn down the opportunity to procure food his family was desperate so the boy crept forward crawling on hands and knees deeper and deeper into the black finally the boy reached a hole in the wall from where the bees emerged and it was here that a strange and foreboding presence spoke to him I am he who is cursed by the gods. So too have I cursed the land with sickness until my name is known and my commands are met. Enter, and you shall know the fate of Lebediah. Paralyzed with fear, the boy could only reach into the hole in the hopes that he would grasp a honeycomb and just simply return to the surface with food and maybe a strange tale. But he was compelled by a force greater than himself. And in a moment, he was grabbed by an unseen entity and pulled into the unknown. A while later, the envoys of the Pythia arrived in the plague-ridden village, seeking this oracle. There they found a group of the most able-bodied citizens searching frantically for a lost boy who had gone out into the fields and had yet to return. Then they heard the screams. The frantic search party followed the terrified cries of the lost boy to the hole in the earth. The local priests, sensing a touch of the otherworldly, volunteered to descend into the dark. After a few tense moments had passed, the priest returned with the boy, but he was now in a wordless, catatonic state. The holy men took the child to a house of good fortune, and there they managed to revive him. Suddenly, he bolted up and spoke as if in a trance, speaking so quickly that the priest had to commit the boy's words to the scribe, But in these mad ramblings, the boy told them what needed to be done in order to restore Lebedea. Sacrifice, the child said. To whom, the priest asked, bewildered. Sacrifice to Trophonius, he said. Sacrifice to the nourisher in the darkness. The music you're hearing is the oldest surviving melody known to man. It comes to us from the epitaph of Sekulos, written for his departed wife. And alongside the engraved score were lyrics. While you live, shine. Don't suffer anything at all. Life exists only a short while. And time demands its toll. Since the very beginning, death was a major part of the Hellenic worldview. Back then, in times of frequent warfare before modern medicine, death was always at hand. Many followers of the gods believed that mortality was spun by the three fates, and that nothing could be done to alter these threads, which wove a grand tapestry of interconnected lives. That said, catching a glimpse at the future was not entirely out of bounds. You just had to know where to find the means, and be prepared to pay a fee, both in gold, and in some cases, your sanity. By far the most important oracle of all was the Pythian oracle at Delphi, though there were other prophets that one could choose to consult. In fact, some leaders would often send envoys out to each known oracle, just to be sure. Always good to have a second opinion, right? The origins of the Pythia lay with the god Apollo, who was born of Leto and her tryst with Zeus. We all know Zeus, and we all know he had numerous side pieces. Go count the moons of Jupiter and that'll give you an idea. In a jealous rage, Hera, Zeus's wife and the queen of the gods, sent the monster Python, who as the name implies was a giant ass snake, to chase Leto across the face of the earth so she would be unable to give birth. Eventually, Leto found refuge on the floating island of Delos and bore both Artemis and Apollo. To get revenge on the snake that had terrorized his mother, Apollo traveled to the abode of Python, at the center of the world, and slew the serpent. And from the name Python, we get the name Pythia. From the serpent's enchanted blood, sweet intoxicating fumes were said to emit from its immortal corpse— and these vapors had the power to mystify the pure-hearted with visions, kind of like a spiritual Wi-Fi connection to Apollo. First century BC writer named Diodorus Siculus tell us that the cave at Delphi was discovered by accident, though of course, in Greek myth, we know nothing is ever by accident, don't we? While out tending to his goats one day, a herder named Coritas found out that one of his flock had fallen into a crack in the ground. After retrieving this stray, Coritas discovered that his goat friend was now tripping balls. So he did what any bored goat herder would do and entered the cave to see if he could get himself high. Suddenly, Coritas was overtaken by ecstatic visions he attributed to the power of the gods and he reported that he could see outside of the present, into the past, and into the future. He shared news of this trip cave with his stoner friends back in the village, and soon the people of Delphi began flocking to the mysterious grotto to tune in and drop out. Though some experienced these same astounding visions of the divine, others were said to have gone into the cave and never returned, just vanishing into thin air. By 1600 BC, a shrine was built over the cave, but not just anybody could go into the cavern and experience a vision. In fact, men as a whole seemed unworthy, and many died after trying to harness the power of the Delphic Cavern. Well, as they say, never send a man to do a woman's job. At first, the villagers of Delphi selected a virgin to act as the appointed seer, or Pythia. Later, in an early example of sexual positivity, the office of the Pythia was extended to any woman of good character from the devotees of Apollo. However, if she was married, she would have to consent to give up her marriage and family for the sake of her functions. This was her sacrifice. One of many, as we'll find out. Though Pythian candidates were initially of noble birth, oracles from the peasantry were later chosen as well. There was also not just one singular oracle stationed at Helphi at any given time, but a rotation of three or four women who lived at the temple. The perks extended to the Pythia were progressive for the time. Unlike other women, the Pythia could own property and attend stately functions, and were on the government's payroll for their duties. Prophecy was a necessity in Hellenic life, and highly valued. The Pythia only gave prophecies on the seventh day of the month, and never in winter, as Apollo is said to vacate the temple for warmer climates. The Pythia may have used this time to participate in the rites to the god of wine and inspiration, Dionysus, instead. On the chosen day, the Pythia would bathe herself in a sacred spring and drink from nearby waters, which were said to be enchanted by a water nymph. Then she would be led by her attendants to her tripod above the vents. Those who came seeking her prophecies would approach the caverns with hands full of laurel, a plant sacred to the god Apollo. These petitioners would also give the attendants the required fee, a de Young goat, for sacrifice. In a temple alcove, this goat would be doused with holy water, and if it shivered from the hooves upward, it was said to be a permission from the god that the oracle may read the consultant's future. However, if not, the client, or supplicant, would be turned away. If approved, the goat would then be slaughtered and its organs divine for a sign of good fortune. Each individual that approached the oracle would have to, essentially, take a number and approach in the order they were received. The Greeks were democratic like that. But in all fairness, this sounds comparatively less boring than waiting in line at the DMV or the deli. There was a good reason why the Oracle at Delphi conducted her rites only one day out of each month, because at the end of each session, it is recorded that the Pythia's condition was like that of a sprinter after a long race. Her trances were often violent, involving contorted movements and convulsions, and she would frequently have to be held back by her attendants. For this reason, the lifespan of the Pythia was typically not very long. Despite this danger, the Pythia was said to take her role very seriously. And indeed, no act of war or diplomacy was undergone without the kings of the land first sending for the oracle's go-ahead. Though not always the case, most oracles of Greece had a Chthonic or subterranean influence about them. By no means as famous as the Delphic Pythia, there was a place in Aphira, near Lake Avernus, just as fearsome and powerful. It was called the Necromantion, the Oracle of the Dead. Unlike the Pythia, there was no mortal conduit here for whom the gods would speak through, and that wasn't the point of this legendary site anyway. Those who came seeking the Necromantion came for one reason, to speak to the dearly departed, and glean wisdom from the dead. Because of this, legend has it that the Necromantion existed at the border between worlds, at the boundary of Hades. This meant that the living would have to undergo a very dangerous journey, descending into the tunnels of the Oracle in order to find that safe middle ground, where they could communicate with those who passed on, without necessarily joining them. Descents into the underworld are nothing foreign to the realm of mythology, Greek or otherwise, Most tellings speak of death personified as the god Thanatos, who acts as more of a force of nature, the ability to die, rather than a full-fledged personality. That later distinction belongs to Hades, king of the land of the dead. And Hades always gets a bad rap, thanks to modern western perspectives and, well, James Woods. But Hades wasn't all that much of a bad guy, really. Greeks often referred to him, in fact, as the generous one, because he always had room for one more soul in his court. But more importantly, he was fair. Death, after all, does not discriminate. Many legendary heroes and heroines would often find themselves in desperate need of journeying into Hades' shadowed kingdom. These descents were fraught with peril, or even trickery. Persephone, goddess of spring and Hades' eventual wife, was doomed to half an eternity in the underworld for simply eating its food. Orpheus, a musician so determined to bring his wife back from the dead that he moved the god of the underworld to tears with his music, lost her all over again, when he just had to look back to see if she was following close behind him. It's this later figure, Orpheus, and his cunning adventure into darkness that inspired his own cult, the Orphic Mysteries. The Orphic Mysteries devised special post-life rituals that could help circumvent the dangers of the Deadlands. By way of Orpheus, who had seen the underworld firsthand and returned to tell the tale, comes the story of the two rivers, Lyte and Nemozine. New souls were instructed to drink from mite, which would obliterate their memories of their mortal lives, but nemazine was special, and rarely used. It had the power to restore memories, and the Orphic cult was specifically instructed to drink from this river upon death. Unlike other religious depictions of an afterlife, the Greeks firmly believed that the dominion of Hades was physical just as it was metaphysical, meaning If you were either foolish or bold enough to go looking for it, there were rumored caves and entrances above ground that could take you there, such as the Necromantion. It turns out this Oracle of the Dead was mentioned in a major subplot of the Odyssey. Odysseus, trying to chart a course home around the traps laid for him by vengeful divinities, is instructed by Circe, not Lannister, to seek counsel from the dead prophet Tiresias. So Odysseus follows the rituals that will safely guide him there, which involve offering sacrifices to the dead, as well as drops of his own blood to summon them into being. Those like Odysseus, who went looking for an opening to the underworld, would often use the geography of the dead to navigate and one of the connectors between the above and below were rivers. Tributaries of Lite and Nemesis, the rivers of memory, were said to flank the sacred site of Lebedea, and were key components in the ritual used to consult the oracle of Trephanius. We know the backstory of how this horror show of a fortune-telling device came to be, but how did it, you know, work? The earliest mention of the oracle is 450 BC, with most of the information on the subject coming to us from the historian Pausanias. The build-up to one's encounter with the entity at the Triphonian cave is actually quite similar to the preparations needed before consulting the oracle at Delphi. First, the petitioner is isolated in a nearby building for an appointed amount of days, all the while bathing and eating only the meat sacrificed to the gods. One of the places of sacrifice is known as the Pit of Agamedes, where the consultant is required to slaughter a goat for the prophetic spirit's deceased brother. You know, the one without the head. On the night of the prophecy, the consultant is escorted by priests to the nearby springs, which are said to bubble up from the underworld rivers of Lite and Nemesis, respectively. He or she is first to drink of the waters of forgetfulness in order to clear their head, and then drink of remembrance so they will retain the visions afterwards. The consultant is then dressed in a linen tunic and led into a low-ceiling dome made of marble. Under this dome is a small hole or entryway in the floor. The priest would then bring the consultant a ladder, so they may descend 12 feet into the depths of the oracle's lair. At the bottom of the pit, in near total darkness, is a small shaft opening, where the entity once known as Trefanius, allegedly waits. The supplicant is then instructed to lay down, feet first, with an offering of a barley and honey cake clutched to their chest. When they are ready, and have no doubt uttered a prayer, they must shuffle forward so their legs, up to their knees, are plunged into the hole. At this point, someone, or something, grabs them and pulls them into what is then described as a surrealistic nightmare chamber of visions. This is why this oracle, of all the others, was considered by the ancients as one of the most powerful, but also, the most dangerous. Now, while the Pythia takes on the onslaught of divine images on behalf of their consultant, those who dove into the depths of Trephanius had to endure those images firsthand, sometimes for as long as up to two days. Well, wasn't called the Cave of Nightmares for nothing. The priests would only descend to retrieve the foolhardy petitioner, quote, once they heard the sounds of their screaming, unquote. When the oracle was done with them, it would spit them out the opposite way they came in, at which point the priests would have to carry them back, nearly catatonic, and sit them upon a special chair called the Throne of Memory. In a post-traumatic, trance-like state, they would blurt out a logoria of what they had seen inside the cave, which a scribe would commit to a tablet. When this was done, the priests would entrust the survivor to their families, and after a few days of recovery, they were said to be no worse for wear. Now, if I may, this all sounds kind of like the Greek myth equivalent to that scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where he takes them on a boat ride acid trip from hell, but I digress. We have an example of one of the visions at Trophonius. The famed Greek essayist Plutarch writes of a vision that took place there concerning the fate of a human soul. In this story, the supplicant, named Tamarcus, descends into the crypt to undergo the ritual. His first experience, after being sucked into the abyss, is having his head split open, after which he emerges as a free soul that travels to a surreal afterlife of glowing islands and swirling rainbow colors. Feel free to insert your own psychedelic rock soundtrack as you listen to this, by the way, because it's going to get pretty weird from here on out. While in this strange metaphysical ether, Timarchus looks down into a deep black abyss. In Plutarch's own words, from it could be heard innumerable roars and groans of animals, the wailing of innumerable babes, the mingled lamentations of men and women, and noise and uproar of every kind, coming faintly from far down in the depths, all of which startled Timarchus not a little. After an interval, someone he did not see addressed him. "'To Marcus, what would you have me explain?' "'Everything,' to Marcus answered. "'For what is here that is not marvelous?' What follows is an intense and profound exploration into the soul's path through the afterlife concerning the weight of the soul relating to which station of the beyond one will be relegated to you when you know what you you, you just go ahead and look it up I'm too sober to explain it but freaky stuff and it's all in keeping with Trefanius's epithet as the nourisher This might seem an odd name, at first. Trophonius wasn't associated with grains or agriculture like the goddess Demeter, but philosophers believe that it wasn't the body that Trophonius was said to nourish, but the mind. Feed your head, in other words. With a couple millennia sitting between us and the ancient Greeks, historians and scientists have puzzled over the means in which the oracles... Delphic and Trophanian alike were able to experience these fantastic and often terrifying visions. And the short answer is drugs. Okay, maybe not exactly drugs, in the sense that we would recognize them anyway, but it's widely accepted that these oracle individuals were clearly divining under the influence. Plutarch noted that the source of the Pythian prophecies had to come from the fumes vented out from the natural openings in the oracle cavern, which were probably not from the corpse of a giant magical snake god, but something more geological in origin. All of this has, actually, been put to the scientific method, thanks science. The suspect in question here is a gas, ethylene. In laboratory tests, ethylene has been shown to cause feelings of physical detachment, out-of-body experiences, hallucinations, loss of sensation or awareness, and convulsions. However, when responding to stimuli, subjects exposed to ethylene could still answer direct questions, albeit in slightly altered voices inconsistent with their normal pitch or speech patterns. And here's the smoking gun, in my opinion. When the gas was removed, the subjects had no recollection of the events that had just transpired, which is eerily similar to what was experienced for those who went to speak to Trophonius But most importantly, the symptoms described in these experiments match the same exact accounts of the oracle at Delphi. In fact, even just a small amount of ethylene inhalation can cause mild symptoms. And guess what's been discovered in the watershed beneath Delphi? minute traces of ethylene. Another candidate for these fantastic visions is the plant held sacred to Apollo, Laurel. Laurel itself has very little toxic properties, but the ancient Greeks happened to group Laurel with a more familiar, and certainly poisonous, plant, Oleander. The oracle at Delphi chewed on these leaves shortly before she dipped into her trances, and this and the smoke from burning oleander may have been what was rising up from the braziers and the vents. Symptoms of oleander poisoning, which often resemble epilepsy, are consistent with the Pythia's trances, and both ethylene and oleander smoke do produce what is often described as a bittersweet smell when present, just like the smell of the fumes in the Pythian chamber. This theory geological activity beneath the oracle caves producing a hallucinogenic vapor holds weight, especially when you start to notice that many of these prophets were located directly over volcanic vents. The oracle of the dead, the exact location being lost to us now, was pinpointed close to Lake Avernus, which was formed from the caldera of a volcano. And it goes without saying, when you put a human in a cave with little oxygen and a bunch of trip gas, it's going to lead to some pretty crazy effects. In the case of Trefanius, we have a few solid leads as to what caused these visions. One is that those who descended into the cavern were first drugged by the water or food given to them by the priests and the oracle attendants. Another hypothesis? It was everyone on the internet's favorite history mystery culprit, Urgot. Ergot is a psychotropic mold that, when ingested, causes hysterical behavior in its victims, including frightening hallucinations. Ergot has been blamed on, among other creepy incidents throughout history, the Dancing Plague of 1518, the Salem Witch Trials, and the mass poisoning at Pont Saint-Esprit in the 1950s. Barley was used in a fair amount of religious rites involving food and drink, such as the Orphic mystery rituals, and the barley cakes were what was offered to Trephanius by the supplicant before they were pulled into darkness. Barley, as a grain, was frequently infected with ergot. This theory postulates that anybody who came to speak with Trephanius was drugged and then pulled most likely by priests, and not demons, into what was essentially a sensory deprivation chamber, where they could let their craziest visions run wild. And after a heavy trip like that, they would need a few days to recover. But as with most hallucinogens, so I'm told, once the effects have subsided, there is no long-term detriment to their health. The temporary loss of memory of these visions is explained via this reasoning as well. When you come down from a trip, you don't often remember the trance. Also, disclaimer, Relic does not condone the use of drugs or alcohol. I suppose the one surefire way to test these theories out, then, would be to simply find the bravest Greek person alive and have them go down into the cave to reenact the ritual. The one problem with that, and the reason why you're listening to this tale in the first place, is that the Oracle of Trifonius has been lost to us for roughly a millennium or two, give or take. Lebedea is as timeless as ever, and today the area around the shrine site is a sunken green oasis, surrounded by stonework and filled in by the waters of the nearby rivers. For centuries, it was thought that the actual shrine itself was an alcove embedded into the cliff near this pool, but when we examine the history and description of the shrine, this doesn't match up. Instead, we have to turn our eyes upwards, to the top of the nearby hill where a Byzantine-era church currently resides. The Church of Jerusalem is its own unique destination in the area, partially because it stood there for centuries, and because of the strange pit located in its catacombs. In the basement, behind an iron grill, sits a hole in the earth. But before you get your hopes up, it doesn't pass the Trefinian test. However, historians believe that this crevice is actually the pit of Agamemnon. So, not the droids we're looking for, but definitely a clue. When Christianity took Greece, it wasn't uncommon to build religious institutions over formerly pagan places of worship, partially as a show of dominance over the old ways, and also to help convert the populace to the new faith. Today, theories abound as to what lies beneath the Church of Jerusalem. No geological investigations or deep ground radar have been deployed to test the depth of the space beneath the church, and, unfortunately, it's unlikely to be excavated anytime soon. The ancient Greeks weren't the only culture that believed the entrance to the afterlife could be found on Earth. Looking towards the east, there is a dormant volcano in a remote region of Japan called Mount Osore. It is also known as the Mountain of Fear, and the legends surrounding this region may sound familiar. Active sulfur pits in this charred landscape still emit noxious fumes, And running through the valley is a brook that the locals believe to be a tributary of the Sanzu River, the Japanese underworld equivalent of the Greeks' river Styx. Instead of Apollo, the patron god of the area is Jizo, the benevolent guardian of new souls crossing into the afterlife, especially the souls of deceased children. And through Jizo's blessing and the powers of the underworld, blind mediums called the Itako, dwell within the shrine and are endowed with the ability to channel the voices of the dead. Twice a year, in summer and autumn, when it is said that the veils between the worlds are at their most thin, locals will visit the shrine maidens in the hopes that they may be able to converse with a departed loved one. Different lyrics, but like the immortal song of Sekulos, the melody stays the same. And this is but one thread of commonality that runs through the earth's oldest religions is belief in communicating with the beyond simply the result of ancient man's interacting with the psychochemical effects of natural phenomenon or do these oracles of the underworld belong to a far more older long lost knowledge maybe there is more to what lies beneath our feet than what we would initially believe relic is written and produced by me maxwell the amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. if you like this podcast and want to sacrifice to the iTunes algorithm gods you can leave a four or five star rating in itunes so other people can find out about it also subscribe you can also connect to relic via twitter at lost treasure pod if you have any comments concerns suggestions or corrections please send me an email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the E's. Our Facebook group is The Reliquary, the Lost Treasure Podcast group. Next time, people have gone into the remote forests of Ecuador in search of cursed gold, never to return. Next week, we journey there too. The Adventure Continues. Return the slab.